Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's give God praise. I'm just so excited about tonight. It's like a family reunion for me coming to the CHCC. And praise and worship. Y'all did a wonderful job. Yes, I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Um, Y'all hold on to that. That's, that's precious. And I just pray that the Lord will continue to uh, remind us of that goodness. And as Liz prayed, that then, then would be a motivation for us to go out to our neighbors. So, again, this is a family reunion. Thank you to my prospectus people back there. My wife and my daughter has joined me also. So we give God praise for you all as well. And, um, yeah, tonight, um, yeah, it's just, it's just good because I've heard so many reports from Pastor Joshua about the wonderful things that's happening here at CCC. Every elders meeting he pops in, every staff meeting he pops in, and he's always giving a praise report about CACC. And truth be told, that's one of the highlights of the meetings. I'm just like, just let Josh talk. Because man, there's just so many things that he's saying that God is doing in and through you all and shaping you as a community, a family, and just being on mission. So, so that's, that's just really good news to hear. I'm also uh, just wanna pass the word that we are praying for for you all. Uh, Rick and Sean and Glow and Grace and all that's taking place. So we are truly in tune and praying along with you all as well. All right. So glad to be here. Now, do you all know what today is? I know some of y'all thought that Tony, Tony, Tony song. I know because I've seen it. That's right. But do you know what today is? It's what? It's Reformation Day, right? This is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door of the All Saints Day. And, you know, he had this reawakening of justification by faith and wanted to renew what Rome had gotten wrong in many places. But also it's a day when people come to your door and they knock on your door and ask you for stuff, right? Call it Halloween too, right? And what an opportunity uh, to be a neighbor. <laughs> and to be a good neighbor means to give good candy and then share with them about your good God, right? So this is a great opportunity uh, to do that. Growing up in the Bronx, New York, I remember when I used to go out for Halloween and come back with a bag full of candy, my mother would be like, hold on, I need to check that candy to make sure that there's no razors or nothing crazy going on in there because folks would do stuff like that. And as a young boy growing up, I thought, what is wrong? Why would people, why would your neighbors do something like that? And it was a sharp contrast as well to what I used to see every day after school on PBS called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. His neighbors wouldn't put no razors in your candy bars or nothing like that. And I was just thinking about, yeah, Mr. Rogers recently, and it's a classic show. And at first I thought it was a little corny, um, but then I recently went back and I kind of looked at his opening liner um, and how he would, on every episode, right, he would always be so happy. He would switch out his kicks. He would throw off his blazer and put on the cardigan. He was real smooth with it, man. I like Mr. Rogers. But this time when I looked at the opening of his uh, show, I zoomed in on the lyrics a little bit. And, and I just want to read them because I think it would give even more insight when we're thinking about neighbors and neighborhood. And he says in the lyrics, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for beauty. I'm not sure what that is, but would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. 
Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please, won't you please, please, won't you be my neighbor? And I'm like, man, he really wants to be my neighbor. And matter of fact, I want to be his neighbor too. And I thought, man, is he a Christian? Um, and I did a little more research and I found an article from the Christian Post and it said this. It says, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was profoundly scriptural. It rested on one of the most vital of biblical passages where Jesus lays out the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. For Fred Rogers, children were his most important neighbors in the rich gospel sense of that word and the focus of his pastoral care. They were human beings made in the image of God. Human beings made in the image of God. And I said, wow, I think he got it right. I think Mr. Rogers got it right. And as Christians, we should especially see that the only qualification to be a neighbor is to be a fellow image bearer. Nothing more, nothing less. So could I be, would I be his neighbor? Yes. But the question is, can I, can you say the same thing? Can you be a neighbor in a biblical sense like that? And as we look at the text of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the big takeaway in Jesus's message is about neighborly love. Those who are saved by grace should go and serve their neighbors with mercy. Those who are saved by grace should go and serve their neighbors with mercy. And we'll see this unfold in two big questions and then two big dilemmas that are answered in one big problem. And then we'll go home with several applications. Amen? Amen? So two questions, two dilemmas, one solution, several applications. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity, God, um, just to hear your word, knowing that your word is living and is active and is sharper than a two-edged sword, is able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. Lord, lay our hearts bare. May we be transformed as we look into your word. Uh, Lord, give us ears of faith, and Lord, give us a heart to have deeper affection for Christ as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And it reads, I'll give you time to get there. Luke chapter 10, classically known as the Good Samaritan. Chapter 10, verse 25 down to 37. And it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So notice here in verse 25, the first question is, how do you have eternal life? And it says, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, this lawyer was considered a subject matter expert, and he studied and interpreted the word of God for the people. He proceeds to ask a serious question, but with wrong motives and wrong understanding. The text is clear with his commentary that he, the lawyer, wants to test Jesus. He wants to trap him in such a way to discredit both his word and his work. This is the M.O. of the evil one. This is how the devil operates. This is straight out of his playbook. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan and he had to rebuke and remind the devil that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So you see not only how far the teachers of Israel during this time had fallen away, how they were now being used by the enemy to be a stumbling block. And family, you gotta be careful when your speech and your actions resemble more and more of the evil one and less and less like Jesus. Satan is subtle, Satan is crafty. But notice the ultimate target of his attack, this idea of works-based righteousness. The same thing Martin Luther had stamped on the wall, 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, that he was going against, this works-based righteousness. The lawyer thought that somehow, some way, he could earn a right standing with an infinitely perfect, infinitely holy God. In the scriptures, God clearly shows us our status before him. And it says that there is none righteous. No, not one. And then he goes on and he says, we have all sinned and fallen short of his holy standard. And his standard is perfection. So even if we both tried to jump across an 18 mile um, Grand Canyon, right? Even if you had more hops than I did and I went five feet and you went seven feet, guess what we both ended up? At the bottom of that pit. We cannot attain his holiness. Our best works are like filthy rags. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. So in other words, we clearly see that we're not sinners because we sin, but family, we sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature. But despite the motives of the lawyer, he still asks a good question because it's the right question. Everyone from Southeast DC to Southeast Asia wonders at some point in their lives, and if you haven't, then tonight will be a good time to think on these things, life's biggest questions. One of those is where do I come from? Like, how in the world did I get here? There's seven billion human beings running around with unique fingerprints on each one of them. Second question is, why am I here? Is there a purpose to life? And if so, what is it? All of this just cannot be random. The third one, what is right and wrong? Is there a moral lawgiver? And if so, can that moral lawgiver be known? And then lastly, number four, what happens when we die? Is there eternal life? And how do I obtain it? And this is the lawyer's big question. And it's a sad, sad thing when you're haunted by these questions and don't know where to go to find answers. 
I know because I was there personally, right? And if this is you today, please know that probably everyone in this room at one time or another have wrestled with one or all of these questions. But be encouraged, there's hope. The scriptures have the answers to life's biggest questions. Let me say that again. The scriptures have answers to life's biggest questions. So here's what the Bible has to say about eternal life. It's a term when people think about heaven. And yes, it's access to a kingdom. And yes, it's a treasure in heaven that neither moth nor rust can access. But most of all, it's about knowing God and spending your forever with him. That should excite you, right? So John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you may know him, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So please know the kingdom of heaven and all the pearly gates and all the streets paved with gold. But if King Jesus is not there, then family, that's not heaven. That's hell. How can you want eternal life and don't love Jesus? How do you want eternal life and think you can actually do something to earn it? This is the first dilemma. Both his motive and his theology was wrong. His heart and his mind was off center. So how does Jesus recalibrate and show this lawyer that his premise is wrong? He points it back to the scriptures. And that's where the truth is. That's where the power lies. And that's what is able to transform and change both heart and mind. So let me tell you, this right here, this understanding was a game changer on the block for me. Sooner or later, while I'm in a discussion or conversation with people that I'm talking to, I ask them if I can share with them God's word. I immediately open up the word, literally open up the word and point them to it. And as I'm reading, right, they're eager to do it. Nine times out of ten, they're like, sure, you can, you can share with me. And I do that. I let the word do the work. And then I see how the Holy Spirit guides that conversation. Now, Jesus did this. Philip the evangelist did this. You remember him with the Ethiopian unit? He asked him in the chariot, do you understand what you are reading? And then he began at Isaiah 53 and then sprung board to the gospel, right? This is the best way to conquer a lie is with the truth of God's word. I can't figure out all of the philosophies out there in the world. I can't discern everybody's heart and everybody's mind. But guess who can? God and his word. And if Jesus believed in the authority and the sufficiency of scriptures, then we should too. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He flips the question back on the lawyer and then points him to God's word. He says, uh, how do you solve the dilemma of bad motives and bad theology? You let the word do the work. So in verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it or interpret it? The lawyer then summarized the whole law in two commandments. One is found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, which is the Shema. Every young, uh, good Israelite boy grew up knowing this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then the second is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which Liz read earlier. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells him when he answers this, that it's the right answer. But Jesus gets at the heart of the issue with his next statement. He said, do this and live. Do this and you will have eternal life. Meaning perfect obedience to God's law leads to eternal life. 
Now we just talked about how this is an impossible feat, right? So what is Jesus doing here? He's using the law exactly the way it was intended to be used. And one of those ways was to reveal the holy character and standards of God. You think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he saw uh, the Lord high and lifted up and angels flying all around, wings covered eyes and flew around saying, holy, 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 right? He dwells in unapproachable light. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. This is the holy standard of God. But number two, what it does, it reveals that no human can keep the law. Again, in Isaiah 6, you see where he saw God's holiness in light of his sinfulness, and he said, woe to me. <laughs> I am undone. I am coming apart literally at the seams, and I live among an unclean people. And he himself saw himself as unclean. So the law shows the holiness of God and his standard. It reveals that no human can keep that standard. It reveals God's holiness and shows our unholiness, our depravity, our inability to live up to that. And James says it like this, even if you keep all the law and break it at just one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. You're supposed to feel that way. Even if you think your best is good enough, you fall way short of that standard. And then lastly, number three, one of the ways that the law uh, was supposed to be uh, used, the law, was supposed to show um, the law was a guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. So in other words, the moral law served as a tutor, training us to strongly desire, strongly have a desire for a savior who could rescue us, a savior who could give the remedy of mercy, not giving us what we deserve, which is punishment for our sins in grace, giving us what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness and eternal life with him. And this is the basis that really separates Christianity from every other religion all around the world. Every cult that you would hear uh, on the streets. Christianity is a religion that's not about what can you do, but it's about what Christ has done. And all religions at their core, they focus on what they can do or what they should not do in order to earn God's favor. And we fail to recognize, just like the lawyer, that this is only a gift that can come from God himself. And when you think about a gift, right, it's something that's freely given. And its worth is based on how much it costs and who gave the gift. Jesus gave his life. And that very one lawyer who was speaking uh, to him was keeping the law perfectly on that lawyer's behalf. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. That lawyer, he didn't know how Jesus' precious blood was about to be spilled for his sins. That lawyer didn't know that the perfect lamb of God would soon become the scapegoat and he who knew no sin would become sin so that he might become the righteousness of God. He didn't know that Jesus on the cross would utter the words to telestai, it is finished, meaning that the debt is paid in full. Amen. And you know who gave that gift? It was the father himself, the holy sovereign creator of heaven and earth and he demonstrated his love to us by giving his only unique begotten son to take the full wrath that we deserved how much it costs who gave it this is a precious precious gift that is also offered to you 
He stands saying, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give rest, rest for your weary souls. Legalism, self-righteousness is so tiring. Grace is free. Come to Jesus. And this was the mind shift that Jesus wanted the lawyer to understand, that we are not meant to be perfect. We are meant to be human, flawed, messy, but deeply loved. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because truth be told, if you had anything to do with your salvation, you would boast. I'm reminded of Jeremiah. He says, let not the rich man boast in his riches, the mighty man boast in his might, or the wise man boast in his wisdom, right? He says all it is, he says, if you boast, boast in this, that you know and understand the Lord, right? It's in so no way that we can boast in anything about salvation, because that's a work of God. So the question, uh, number one was, what must I do to inherit life? Which leads to this hopeless dilemma that there is nothing that you can do but thanks be to God for the solution of the gospel of grace, that Christ is our righteousness, which leads to question number two, who is my neighbor? Now, on the surface, this may seem like a legitimate question, but at a closer glance, you notice a hint of pride rather than the humble posture of how can I serve my neighbor? Notice in verse 29, the scriptures say that the lawyer desired to justify himself. And it says, and he says, who is my neighbor? So he was looking for a loophole to narrow the scope of who he should show compassion to. Now, if those who are saved by grace should go and serve their neighbors with mercy, then our scope should be wide and deep and not narrow and shallow. Why? Because God's love, his mercy, his grace towards us was both wide and deep and not shallow or narrow. So on the basketball court, everyone knows my game resembles Michael Jordan and some days KD. Let me finish for you. I say, don't be lying in church. I see you, Rick. But it looks like that only if the 10 foot regulation rim is lowered to six feet, then I can show you some moves, but that's illegitimate. That's the standard being lowered to accommodate my shortcomings. The common notion in Israel was my neighbor was my fellow Jew. And sometimes my favorite fellow Jew, that's a shortcoming. But even in the Old Testament, they failed to realize in that very same chapter of 19 that Liz read, if, it went, if you went on to verse 33 and 34, it expands the definition of neighbor. And it says this, verse 33, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger, the non-Jew, who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Wow. Leviticus 19, 33 to 34 calls for Israel to love the non-Jew even as a neighbor. Uh, love them as they love themselves. So this passage calls God's people to consider the stranger and to love them because they themselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this is the second dilemma. The lawyer had a very narrow and shallow view of neighbor. In fact, it actually exposed their sin of partiality and racism. And it was quite interesting that Luke, in verse 25, began by saying, and behold, and behold, right? With a, con with a contraction, it, he wants to draw our attention to the previous passages, specifically in chapter 9, verse 51 to 56, 
where Jesus is set to continue his journey towards Jerusalem to go to the cross. And this is the backdrop in which the current conversation takes place with the lawyer. And what I want you to do is notice Jesus's heart. And then in contrast, notice his disciples heart and in their view towards these Samaritans. Verse 51 of chapter nine in Luke, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Now, family, we may not say these same exact words with our mouth, but don't we do this with our actions at times? Oh, we won't go here and we won't go there with the message of this gospel. But guess what? If they never hear, then they will be consumed by fire. Now, it's extremely important to understand the climate during this time that these two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, have nothing to do with one another. They hate it each other. The Samaritans were considered a mixed breed. Half Jew, half Gentile. Outcasts. And strict Jews, in order not to defile themselves, would not even step foot inside of Samaria. It's similar to many of the factions we have today. The various tribes, political party affiliations, ethnic or socioeconomic groupings that divide us as Christians. So many unfortunate ways. We don't want to have anything to do with those people. But Jesus's heart was different. He desired to bring the message and mercy to the Samaritans. He made plans, but the scriptures say that the Samaritans did not receive him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And this type of favoritism, racism and prejudice can cause you to miss Jesus or misrepresent Jesus. It can be subtle or it can be blatant in our hearts. And it takes Jesus and his word and his people to help us uncover it. And if we're honest, we are comfortable around those who are similar to us. Those who move in the same circles, have the same background and experience. Like my man Greg, he's from New York. And if you ever seen two New Yorkers get together, you know, they got this insider language. They got hand movements and all of that stuff that people have no clue about. They don't know what they're doing. When we look at the surface identity of things, when we think about looking at skin color and language and ethnicity, right? We have no problem being neighbors in that sense, but Jesus calls his followers to do something different. He calls us to broaden who our neighbor is, and he wants us to ask not who, but how. How can we be a neighbor to all peoples, every nation, tribe, and tongue? which by the way is a major motivation for both local and global missions in that way. And Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? There are two ways to respond to the sin of partiality or racism. Come clean or cover up. There's no gray. So Jesus illustrates this with a story to help the lawyer come clean. He tells a parable which means to cast light alongside. The purpose is to give an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, a meaning that will uh, drill home his point, that those who are saved by grace 
should go and serve their neighbors with mercy, and that our scope should be wide and deep, not narrow and shallow. So we see here in verse 30 to 36 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it says, and in it, right, you have this man who doesn't, they don't say who he is, but it does say where he's going. He's traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles long, about 770 feet below sea level. That's important. Why? Because you have all kind of cracks and crevices and caves for people to duck in and do dirt, like rob and steal and jump people. And that's exactly what happens. They stripped the man, they beat the man, and they left this man half dead. And then we're introduced to two new characters, a priest and a Levite. And these two represent the religious leadership, church folk. And as they were on their way, maybe in a hurry, either late to church or in a hurry to get out of this particular neighborhood, either way, the parable itself doesn't say why, only that they both saw and they both passed on. These were the common denominators of both of these religious leaders. And I'm sure many of us can relate to this. Out of sight, out of mind. I know I can. And when I read God's word in this way, the word of God has a way of reading me. It shows me my own heart. That I myself, I know I have room to grow by God's grace in this area. Especially those who come from our urban backgrounds, Southeast D.C., Chicago, New York, etc., because right off the break, you're already skeptical, right? This is how you grew up. You're just like the lawyer. You're looking for loopholes to justify why not him? Why not her? This is how we were raised, not to go for the okie doke. And at first glance, I'm like, man, if you go and help this robber, who's to say somebody ain't waiting for you to jump out and attack you, right? These are ways that we think because we grew up in these ways. And yes, there is a difference between being naive and being compassionate, but I come as a fellow mourner asking that the Lord would give me a greater heart of mercy and a sharper mind for discernment that I would see like Jesus sees, that the wounded man should trump all other considerations because it was the wounded man, Jesus, that trumped all other considerations for me and you. So we see that the religious folk failed the requirement of love of neighbor. And then we see a third person appear on the scene. This is the surprising twist. This is the climax of the parable. It's a Samaritan. And it's the Samaritan who lives out the spirit of the law of loving your neighbor. It's the Samaritan that's the example of truly loving your neighbor as yourself and compassion in action. It's the Samaritan that Jesus points to and says, this is what that looks like. In verse 34, he bandaged his wounds with oil and wine. That wine served as an antiseptic during this time, and the oil eased the pain. This was loving kindness on display. He put him on his own animal. He put him beat up and bloody in the bins, the Mercedes bins, the new one, which indicates this man was in such bad shape to the point that not being able to walk or even get up on the animal on his own. It was the Samaritan that set him on his own animal, physically picked him up and then walked alongside the man on the way to the end. And Jesus knew all too well about the difficulty of how hard it was to find a room at the end. But the Samaritan was determined to show love. Verse 35 says he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper to take care of him. 
And whatever he spent, he would repay when he returned. Two denarii would have paid for up to two months for room and board. And then he promises to cover any additional expenses that he may have. This is very generous. And it shows that uh, Jesus shows the definition of love and who is and how to love your neighbor in this way. And then we come lastly to the solution. The lawyer asks, who is my late neighbor? And Jesus asks, who proves to be the neighbor? See there in verse 36 and 37? It says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So this proving to be a neighbor is reminiscent of James 2.8, where James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And this gets to the heart of the fact that we are neighbors regardless of proximity, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, or neighborhood that you may find yourself in. It's not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? You see a need, meet a need. And that can take the form of time, talent, or treasure. Now, this might take advantage of us, sure. But instead of looking for loopholes, let's lean in with love. When Jesus ends with, you go and do likewise, the answer to the two questions and the solution and to the two dilemmas are the same, the gospel. The only way to love like this is to have a new heart with God's spirit within you. The only way to love like this is to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence with you. It is only as the love of Christ is poured out within your hearts through the spirit will we love as we ought and within community spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Whom will God have you love today? Whom will he have you serve? Not to work for approval from God, but because you are approved already by God. And in that way, we're free and empowered as those who are saved by grace to go and serve our neighbors with mercy, all our neighbors. So what I want to do is give us a few practical strategies and takeaways. Right? So when you're thinking about mercy ministry, it would be helpful to judge your response, judge um, your response to a need by the impact of the person. So again, when thinking about mercy ministry, it would be helpful to judge your response to a need by its impact on the person, right? So simple question that you want to consider is, does this action that I'm getting ready to take help or hurt this individual? Does it help or hurt? Sometimes our generosity can enable sinful and destructive behavior. So love may look like withholding money or aid in that situation for a season. So love may look like um, tough love. Right? Good partnerships within the body are helpful here, whether spurring one another on or helping to discern what's happening. I know a ministry in Camden uh, where they have what they call morning manna. Um, this is similar to Coffee and Convo, but the church in this context is similar to Congress Heights. And a small group that got together recognized that in this community it was poor nutrition for kids that were going to school. They couldn't concentrate. They was losing focus. So what they did was they gathered a whole bunch of healthy snacks, water um, for children and the family in the community, 
and they stopped at a busy intersection where bus stops and different people were coming, and they started to give out the food, give out the water, but it naturally developed into relationships and opportunities for the gospel. They saw a need, they met a need, and it opened up tons of opportunities for gospel conversations. And in Coffee and Cabo, even what we do on Mondays, right? You guys are familiar with that. And we found that throughout the years, just being consistent in the neighborhood has been an urban apologetic, right? Many times you have organizations that come, organizations that go, churches that come, and churches that go, but to be consistent and faithful speaks volumes. And the testimony is, we've seen people come to faith and we currently have several people that are waiting to come into membership into the church. So we praise God for that, right? It's God that produces the fruit, but he calls us to be faithful in that. Amen? And I'm not sure if, if you all have heard of the book called The Art of Neighboring. It's by Jay Pathick. And in his book, he states that Christians in their efforts to visit soup kitchens and places like that often neglect their literal neighbors who live next door and across the street. So we don't want to think too far gone that we don't even see people who are right in front of us, right? And this is so true. I like that we can serve our neighbors as a community in the church or as churches working together, but let us not forget our literal neighbors next door. And yes, it's risky, but Jesus is our example. He placed his life in the hands of his father who never lets go of his chosen people. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He left heaven in all its glory and came to a rough neighborhood among robbers and thieves and sinners. And he was whipped and beat and hung on a cross for a crime that he did not commit. And the Bible says that it was for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, despising his shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And now he continually makes intercession on our behalf and promises never to leave us nor forsake us even in difficult and hard situations. He did it, and he calls us to do likewise, whether our literal block or within our community as a whole. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example, but we thank you most of all, God, for salvation. We thank you, God, that we are those who are saved by your grace, and you call us to go out with acts of mercy to our neighbors. But Lord, we know that we could never do that perfectly, but God, help us to lean in with love and to trust you for the results. God, we have been shown much mercy. May we be a people that give much mercy. Oh God, transform our hearts, transform our minds, do it for your glory, for the salvation of many in Southeast DC. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.